Well, good evening, everyone, everyone here and everyone uh, online. Um, tonight, we embarked on a brand new series. Uh, it's a five-part biographical series on Wednesday nights here. Uh, there'll be a different speaker every Wednesday, and I'm going to be kicking it off. So um, this, uh, this series is basically, as I mentioned, a biographical series of a unique Christian historical figure and what they thought about or how they celebrated Christmas in their day. And uh, I'm going to begin this series with Clive Staples Lewis, better known as C.S. Lewis. He didn't much care for the name Clive, and since he was six years old, he insisted everyone call him Jack. So what did uh, C.S. Lewis think about Christmas? Well, plenty. In his book, Mere Christianity, a book I'd highly recommend, uh, C.S. Lewis summed up Christmas in one sentence, and I included this in your outline. It's very, very poignant. He simply says, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Now, this was not always the sentiment that Lewis had about Christmas. In fact, this beloved and well-read author wasn't even always a Christian. You see, like each one of us, C.S. Lewis has a story. He has a story. And tonight, I hope that in taking a look at his story, you'll be spurred to write and share your story with others. So let's just take a brief look through C.S. Lewis's life. Um, I've left room in your outlines in case you'd like to jot down some biographical information that I share from his own writings and from those of his biographers. Uh, I am not a C.S. Lewis scholar. I just enjoy research, so I'm sharing with you um, what I've read and what I've discovered, and I am quoting liberally from his biographers and from his own writings. So, as every story, both our story and C.S. Lewis' story, there's three main elements. One is before your conversion to Christ, second is your conversion experience, and third is what your life is like after your conversion. So we're going to begin with C.S. Lewis and begin with before conversion. We're going to actually go way back and just kind of give some background information of his early childhood so that we understand who he is. He was born in Belfast, Ireland on November 29, 1898, and was baptized into the Church of Ireland as a baby. His father, Albert, was a solicitor, and his mother, Flora, was a daughter of a Church Ireland minister, and she was a graduate in mathematics. He had an older brother, Warren, and from the age of four, he insisted that he be called Jacksey, or Jack. Actually, the name of his dog was Jacksey, and, and um, he says that he didn't quite care for his first name, and so he insisted that all of his family members and friends call him Jack. And he called his brother Warney, too. But at the age of 10, tragedy struck, and his mother died of cancer. His father, devastated and feeling unable to give his sons the sort of the nurturing that they had received from his mother... Um, sent them away to boarding school. Lewis was educated in a number of public schools, and the first of which was horrible, and I won't get into you know, much specifics uh, in his biography, but it is, it is worth reading. But since his mother's long illness was treated at home, Lewis had a crisis of faith. He writes in his autobiographical book, Surprised by Joy, quote, When her case was pronounced hopeless, I remembered what I had been taught that prayers offered in faith would be granted. 
I accordingly set myself to produce by willpower a firm belief that my prayers for her recovery would be successful, and as I thought, I achieved it. But he also wrote, I had approached God, or at least my idea of God, without love, without awe, even without fear. He was, in my mental picture of this, to either to appear neither as a savior nor a judge, but merely as a magician. And when we had done what was required of him, I suppose he would simply, well, go away. Then he wrote, when my, With my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. Have you faced devastation? A storm in your life that rocked your faith? Well, you're not alone. And nor were you alone because God was with you in the midst of that storm. Maybe you can remember a particular storm and you, th you thought, where is God in this? This doesn't make sense. Maybe you clung to your belief in God and recognized that he was with you. But whether you recognized he was with you or you didn't, God was with you. And he used that circumstance to shape your story. And just as tragic as his mother's death was and the things that shaped him as a young boy led him to atheism, it was all part of his story that led him to become one of the great apologists of the 20th century. I'll continue. While his brother Warren was at Malvern College, Jack was boarding at Cherbourg House, a preparatory feeder school for Malvern College. And like some of these boarding houses, they had what was called a matron. And a matron was always a woman who was uh, not a professor, but who sort of cared for the social life of the people in the college. And this particular person, whom he calls Miss C, um, was an atheist and instilled in him some different things that, well, led him to begin to wane from his earlier notions of Christianity from his parents. He notes how caring she was in her professional role as a matron, and since he felt like an orphan with no friends, his brother in a different school, and his father far away, having withdrawn from, withdrawn from him with only occasional polite interaction, she became like a mother figure to him that, he, that was missing. And as a teenager, he began to grow closer and closer to forsaking the faith from which he had in his, as an early boyhood, in early boyhood. As a teenager, he writes that he experienced Seinzuk. Seinzuk. I can't pronounce it properly, but it's German for a longing, uh, an intensity of, of longing. He writes um, that unnameable something, desire for which pierces us like a rapier at the smell of bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the morning cobwebs in the late summer, the noise of falling leaves. It was that longing or that yearning that he was experiencing, but he didn't yet have that object that he needed to have. Well, having been financed by his father, Lewis received within four years of study two BA honorable degrees from the University of Oxford, having passed all three required public examinations with first-class honors. These degrees were in Greek and Roman literature, classical philosophy, and in English. 
His studies led him to philosophical ideals expressed by Hegel and Gnosticism, but he soon discovered that realism had to be abandoned as well as his belief that humanity today is innately more advanced and superior to people of previous ages, particularly after he read G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man. Now, I read that, those two paragraphs from his biography, um, but to summarize, he was taught of early philosophers, he was taught from early historical figures, and from history, Middle Ages and on forward, Age of Reason, Age of the Renaissance, just that, you know, people had grown more and more um, capable in their thinking toward modernism and, and, and postmodernism, and he, he tried to put that all together, but couldn't. And so now he begins his conversion experience where in God's design, he befriends two Christians who would help him to recognize this longing, this yearning that he had, and help him to understand that God wasn't a myth, God was God. So as a young atheist at Oxford, Lewis gradually became religious through his friends J.R.R. Tolkien, a name you'll, re you'll recognize as the author of the Lord of the Rings series and The Hobbit, and Hugo Dyson. He was also inspired greatly through the Christian writings of George MacDonald. He began to wrestle with the philosophies of Hegel's absolute spirit and Plato's otherness of God, recognizing that this was not God as Lord or the origin or creator. It wasn't really God revealed in the incarnation that we celebrate in Christmas. And he writes in his conversion experience, quote, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. So he acknowledged that God was God. And this was the first of two steps, because that was merely sort of a conversion to, as his biographers say, a conversion to theism. And later, the Holy Spirit would begin to minister to him as he does. And through a lengthy debate with J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, one night um, in Oxford, he knew that Jesus was the Christ, the incarnate, crucified, and resurrected Son of God. That was his conversion experience. Now, after conversion is what most of us know of C.S. Lewis. And from his biography... His understanding of Christ is grounded in many ways in the future, the transcendent action of a loving God, the God of love, the incarnate Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, more than just a God to believe in, a cosmic otherworldly God, something unattainable and someone who doesn't interact with human beings, but a personal God, the God who is with us. And so... After his conversion, we see that the incarnation, Christmas, was now supremely important to someone who was an academic and who saw God as a myth or, you know, sort of dismissed it as, you know, another fairy tale. 
So what can we learn from, from this? Well, number four lessons from Lewis. In his book, Miracles, he writes, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Wow, talk about a, a, about face from, from myth to now the central miracle is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. It's what we know as John 3.16, God sent his son, Jesus, to become a man because he so loved us. That is the incarnation. I'll read two small excerpts from some poetry that he also wrote of Christmas. In the Nativity, he writes, Among the sheep, I like a sheep have strayed. I watch the manger where my Lord is laid. On that, my buying nature would win thence some woolly innocence. And in the turn of the tide, so death lay in arrest, but at Bethlehem the blessed, nothing greater could be heard than sighing wind in the thorn, the cry of one newborn, and cattle in stable as they stirred. So you see that Christmas meant a great deal to C.S. Lewis. But he was also perturbed with the commercialism. I mean, now here he is, a scholar and someone who actively acknowledges the humanity of Jesus and what it means to be with God, that, or what it means for God to be with us. But yet, becoming disillusioned with all the commercialism, he writes in uh, 1954 an essay that he calls Xmas and Christmas a lost chapter from Herodotus. And many of you may know that Herodotus was, was an ancient historian, particularly of, um, of Rome. And in it, he, he creates this fictional land that he calls Nyaturb, which is Britain spelled backwards. And, and Nyaturb set, uh, celebrates two festivals, and he maintains that they're both distinct, even though they're celebrated on the same day. Xmas is a festival of excesses, with participants frantically exchanging cards and gifts very reluctantly with people that they barely know. And the other, Christmas, is quieter, simpler. It's a celebration that is centered on the birth of a child. Don't we see that today? Now, we may not call one Xmas and one Christmas, but we recognize that consumerism and all of the, the hustle and bustle contributes to, or at least tempts us, to turn our eyes from the true meaning of what Christmas is all about. Now, I couldn't speak of C.S. Lewis and not mention one of his most well-known series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in particular, the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You see, C.S. Lewis, even as a little boy, would, would, would write little stories. He, he loved reading fairy tales and fiction, particularly from E. Nesbitt and, and Beatrix Potter. And, um, and he would make up stories of, of anthropomorphic um, you know, animals that, that talked and so forth. And when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he actually wrote in a letter that his aim was what he termed a supposal. That is, what if Christ came incarnate in another world as another sentient creature? What if he appeared in an entirely different universe, another reality? Well, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we know that the good inhabitants of the land of Narnia have this proverb. Aslan, the lion who rules their country, 
but whose absence has brought a time when it is winter, but never Christmas. They say wrongs will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. Well, we're approaching a time called Advent. And though God's people in the Old Testament um, were experiencing exile through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians, um, even later they had Roman occupation, they were awaiting the Messiah to come. And what we call Advent is a time when we await the Christ child to be born, the Messiah to come. Now, of course, he has, but that is what Advent is. It's that longing, it's that expecting. Just like Aslan would come and right the wrongs, the Messiah would come and he would right the wrongs as well. For those who've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who can forget the surprising encounter with none other than Father Christmas? Reading from, from the book, Come on, cried Mr. Beaver, who was almost dancing with the delight. Come and see. This is a nasty knock for the witch. It looks as if her power is already crumbling. It was a sledge, and with it was reindeer with bells on their harness. And on the sledge sat a person whom everyone knew the moment they set eyes on him. He was a huge man in a bright red robe, bright as hollyberries, with a hood that had fur inside it and a great white beard that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. Everyone knew him because though you see people of his sort only in Narnia, you see pictures of them and hear them talked about even in our world, the world on this side of the wardrobe door. But when you really see them in Narnia, it is rather different. Some of the pictures of Father Christmas in our world make him look only funny and jolly. But now that the children actually stood looking at him, they didn't find it quite like that. He was so big and so glad and so real that they all became quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn. I've come at last, said he. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. So I read that expert, excerpt from the Chronicles of Narnia because I had to think, why is Father Christmas in Narnia? I mean, I was thinking of, okay, coming up with a biographical message of C.S. Lewis and Christmas. Father Christmas is in Narnia, one of the most loved and celebrated books that he's written. And I had to scratch my head. Well, a lot of his friends actually advised him to, to take that part out. They said, why do you have Santa Claus inside of, inside of Oslo? I mean, you can have centaurs, you can have ogres, you can have, you know, all these other people, but, you know, why Father Christmas? Well, he didn't tell them exactly why, but in looking back, one of his biographers, I think, has a point. He says, in Narnia, the one who most represented God the Father is, if you've read the books, the emperor beyond the sea. And Aslan, of course, is clearly the Christ figure. But what about the Holy Spirit? Who comes after Jesus but the Holy Spirit? And Father Christmas says, I've got in at last. Aslan is on the move. So Aslan came first and then Father Christmas, who in this story, besides Aslan, needs no introduction. The children he knows their names. And what does he do? He comes and gives them gifts. Gifts to help them fight in the battle against evil. And isn't that what the Holy Spirit gives us? Our gifts to help us ward against the temptation from the evil one. 
Now, perhaps Father Christmas allegorically represents the third person of Trinity. Lewis never, you know, said definitively. But the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for us today. But one of the other things that I meant that I hear here is that I see is when Mr. Beaver says, come and see. Now, I don't know about you, but a talking beaver doesn't necessarily have the greatest amount of influence. But when you hear come and see, what do you want to do? You want to come and see, right? There's, there's an expectancy. And that's what we are to do. You see, when he says it was winter without Christmas, I mean, think about it. That's, it sort of describes the, the spiritual uh, impoverishment or the literal winter of the soul separated from God. Someone who doesn't know God can't experience Christmas, which is God with us, because they're not with God. They've, they've pushed him away. They've separated him. They've rejected him. It's winter, but no Christmas. But as Aslan approaches, the snow begins to thaw. Just as the message that we give to that person helps to thaw their icy heart and helps them to recognize that God is God. And moreover, God is with us. So what do we do? We say, come and see, just like Mr. Beaver. I doubt he was a theologian, but he said, come and see. You don't have to be a theologian. You can be a talking beaver, but you can say, come and see, and people are going to want to come and see. All right, one final illustration. Later in life, in 1961, the Russians put a, the first man into space. And the prime minister, um, Khrushchev, said that uh, when, when this cosmonaut went into space, that he discovered that there was no God there. Well, naturally, C.S. Lewis had to respond in an article, and he did so in The Seeing Eye. He said that if there is a God who created us, we could not discover him by going up into the air. God would not relate to human beings the way a man on the second floor relates to a man on the first floor. They're both men. He would relate to us the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare is the creator of Hamlet's world and of Hamlet himself. Hamlet can know about Shakespeare only if the author reveals information about himself in the play. So, too, the only way to know about God is if God has revealed himself, end quote. And again, that is Lewis's description of Christmas, God revealing himself. It's precisely what the incarnation at Christmas is all about, God revealing himself through his son, Emmanuel, God with us. Another lesson is this. Besides being a professor and, and author, C.S. Lewis would speak on the radio, during his radio broadcast during World War II, he said, quote, The church exists for nothing else than to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. Now, of course, he wasn't suggesting that we become little gods. But rather, as Christians, we ought to duplicate ourselves. This is what he was getting at. That's, what, that's the reason for the church that God instituted. We are to duplicate ourselves. It sounds a lot like our own mission statement here at Woodland, 
right? Let's say it together. Celebrating God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Christ. Well, what do we have to be first? A passionate follower of Christ. Then what are we called to do? To persuade others to become passionate followers of Christ. This is what C.S. Lewis was getting at when he said that on the radio, and this is what Christmas is about. But Christmas is just the beginning. I have a series of fill-ins for you, and I want to go through these because this is sort of the gospel that encapsulates a lot of his writings, although he didn't write this, I did, but, but it's sort of what we can take away from this. Through his incarnation, Christ was born into the world. So it begins with his incarnation. Then through his earthly ministry, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. But while he was on earth as a man, he could only speak to only a few at a time. Even 5,000 was a lot of people, but compare that to 5 billion today. So he was limited in his earthly body. He had disciples, and through his earthly ministry, he proclaimed the kingdom of God, but it didn't end there. Because through his perfect life, he became the acceptable sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Christ was born for a reason, and that reason was to die for the sins of the world. And, he, and he, through his sinless, perfect life, he was able to do just that. But then, through his resurrection, he conquered death and offers eternal life with him to all who believe. So, through his incarnation, his earthly ministry, his sinless life, through his resurrection... We now finally come after his ascension through his church. His message of salvation is brought to the world. Not one person, not God becoming man, fully God and fully human, limited in space and time in one point, but now through his church to whom he's given the Holy Spirit, who gives us spiritual gifts to be his witness, his mouthpiece, his feet, his hands extended. Through his church, his message of salvation is brought to the world. So we begin at Christmas, through his incarnation, Christ is, brought, Christ is born into the world. And through his church, his message of salvation is brought to the world. Finally, we are his church. We are his church. And what are we to do? We're meant to tell his story. We're his hands were his feet. Now, like I said about Mr. Beaver, you don't need to be a theologian or an apologist um, or even a beaver. The first people to proclaim the good news of Christ's birth were uneducated shepherds. They didn't have to explain it, but like the beaver, they just had to say, come and see. They simply told everyone. Let's review it in, uh, in the book of Luke. When the angels had returned to heaven... The shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. What did they do? They told everyone. What are we to do? Tell everyone. Likewise, when Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman 
one who didn't have much influence at all, she simply said, come and see. Sort of sounds like Mr. Beaver. John chapter 4, verse 26. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. What did he do? He revealed himself to her. Just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And then read this next part with me. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. See, she only had to say, come and see. The people came to see. Lewis's conversion was God's self-revelation, that is, God revealing himself to C.S. Lewis. And God wants to do the same thing to every person. But he sometimes, oftentimes, most of the time, chooses to use us. We are to share that story so that others can hear. So to close, know that you have a story. You have a story. And no matter who you are, you have influence. If a beaver that talks can have influence and a fawn and all these other magical creatures in Narnia, think of what you can do. God has been with you throughout your life as part of your story, even when you didn't realize. And he's chosen you and called you to share your story, his story, to others. Would C.S. Lewis have been the man he became had his mother not died of cancer? Had he not had a crisis of faith? Had he not gone through these horrible situations in these boarding schools? We don't know. But we do know that God uses, that God used those situations, used those circumstances to shape him. God brought people into his life to help point him in the right direction. And God will bring people into your life to help you in the direction that you ought to walk. But here's what I would say. You are that person whom God is desiring to be a part of someone's life to help direct them. You are to be that Dyson. You are to be that token to someone else to help them go from atheist to deist or theist to apologist, perhaps. But God wants to use you. We simply have to be willing. I left you some growth work, and I didn't go over one part. I skipped over it, but I want us to sort of talk about that in our time together. And for those of you at home, um, I want you to do this as well. And I think it would be helpful if you uh, do it with someone. And that is, create your story. Write your story. We looked at C.S. Lewis's story before conversion, conversion experience, after conversion, as point one. Point two, you can write your name, your story, before conversion, conversion experience, after conversion. Then, after you've done that, refine it. 
and briefly describe your life before conversion, conversion experience, and your life since your conversion in two minutes. Just boil it down to the highlights. This is that starting block. This is that first step. This is that icebreaker. This is that way that you can share God's story through your own story. Who was God to you? What has he done for you? You know, people will care more about what you have to say about God after they've heard what God has done for you. They may try to argue what's in the Bible, but they can't argue your personal story. It's your story. Number two, what has Christmas meant to you before and after your conversion? Christmas is that time of year where things are amplified. As a child, things are bigger. We, we, we see all these wonderful things and presents and tall trees. We get together with relatives we haven't seen in a long time. But it also magnifies sorrows if we've lost a loved one at Christmas time. It magnifies joy when we've given or received something from someone. It's, it's the great magnifier, both to someone who isn't a Christian and to someone who is a Christian. What you can tell to someone else is what God means to you at Christmas time. And it opens a door, it opens that sort of common experience that we all share. Even the unbeliever celebrates Christmas in one way or another. It might be Lewis's Xmas, but suffice to say, it's not ignored. Everyone celebrates Christmas in one way or another. So find common ground where you can um, begin a conversation about Christ. Number three, do you recognize the distinction Lewis wrote about in Xmas and Christmas, that fictional essay? And how might you influence others to embrace the true meaning of Christmas that he adored instead of the commercialized one that he criticized? Who will you share your story with this Christmas? This is the perfect time. It's a most wonderful, opportune time to share your story with someone this year. And finally, who will you invite to our Christmas and Christmas Eve services? There are people who will come for no other reason than because you invite them. Let that be an open door to a relationship with Christ that they will have for the rest of their life and for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, that through the story of C.S. Lewis and through reflecting upon our own stories, and Lord, that you would use us. Father, use us to recognize who you are, the truth of who you are. Lord, just as Jesus identified himself to the woman in the well, at the well, he says, I am the Messiah, and she ran to all the people in her village and said, come and see. But she experienced the relationship of you. Jesus said that those who worship him would worship him in spirit and in truth. He said that to her. And Lord, you revealed yourself to her. Lord, may you reveal yourself to us so that we can worship you in truth. We can't know you except that you reveal yourself to us. And others can't know you except that, they are re that, they, that you have been revealed to them. Use us, Lord, to help them see the truth of the gospel, that you are the one true God, and that you have a plan and purpose for them. Thank you, Lord, for 
for using this message to spur us to, to write our story and to share it with others so that all may become passionate followers of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. I'm going to uh, turn off, the, um, turn off the, the live feed and we're going to just talk about our stories here and about what we think of Christmas. And if you're online, we really want to encourage you to come to Woodland at 630 where, where you can enjoy time of, of fellowship with fellow Christians and also be able to ask questions and, and give answers and just share. It's just a wonderful time to be with others. So we hope that, we'll jo that you'll join us next week. Um, Becky will be sharing with us next week in the next chapter of this series, so we look forward to that. God bless you. Good night.